0: We're going to read this morning Colossians one verses twenty four to twenty nine, and before we do, again, let's go to the Lord praying for His blessing on the reading and the preaching of His Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you naked and and poor and wretched and miserable, and we come to buy gold refined in the in the fire and white garments and um, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would grant us all of those things that you give in the gospel. We pray that you would give us understanding and wisdom as your word is proclaimed, that you would help us to see the depths. That we may not see the bottom, but we may see the depths and how infinitely rich and how infinitely wide and high and long is the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Lord Jesus, we pray that the hearts of the men and women and boys and girls here this morning would be Would be um, pricked, that they would be cut to the heart by the preaching of the word, that they would be um, built up and edified in Christ, that they would be drawn to the Savior, that they would be sanctified in the Savior. Father, there are a thousand things that you would wish to accomplish in us this morning, and we pray that you would accomplish all of your holy will. We pray that you would give much grace to the one who preaches and those that listen, and we pray above all things that we would have eyes to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be present with us in power and in grace and with much conviction in your spirit. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 24. But the word of God endures forever. Well, I have several books in my library that I seem to return to again and again. I find them to be the most edifying, the most encouraging to me as a Christian. They are not necessarily theological volumes. So they are full of theology. They are not systematic or biblical theologies. They're certainly not Hebrew and Greek manuals. I promise you that. But there are several books I go back to time and time again because the value of reading these books is inestimable. These books are very simply the records of those that suffer for Jesus Christ. Martyrs, prisoners, those testimonies of those that have suffered for the gospel. Fox's Book of Martyrs, I have a book called A Cloud of Witnesses, and probably my favorite and the most energizing spiritually of all of them is the account of John Bunyan in prison. All of you know uh, John Bunyan is the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, probably the second best and most influential Christian book ever written. Bunyan wrote that during his imprisonment in the Bedford prison. He was there for 12 years. It was his second arrest. He had been imprisoned for six months for preaching the gospel, and then they came and took him from his wife and his children, his blind daughter, and they threw him in prison for 12 more years for preaching the gospel. And Bunyan was there, and it was there during his imprisonment that some of the greatest things ever written in Christianity for the well-being of the church were penned. And besides the Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan left a short testimony of his meditations, a diary, as it were, of his time in prison. And these are some of the words I found most impacting. He said, I never had, he's writing in prison, I never had in all my life so great an inlet into the word of God as now. Those scriptures that I saw nothing in before were made in this place to shine upon me. Jesus Christ also was never as real and apparent as now. Here I have seen and felt him indeed. I have had sweet sights of the forgiveness of my sins in this place and of my being with Jesus in another world. I never knew what it was for God to stand by me at all turns, as I have found him since I came in here. Were it lawful, I could pray for greater trouble, for the greater comfort's sake. John Bunyan was basically saying, it is good for me, it is good for me to be in prison for the gospel. And it is good for us that John Bunyan was in prison for the gospel. And I think that that historical illustration is exactly what Paul is telling us in this text. The apostle who has never met the Colossians, who is the great apostle of the Gentiles, who's been taking the gospel out throughout the world, suffered great persecution, as we've heard through our series in Acts and Galatians. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was Reviled, he was scourged. He, everything imaginable happened to Paul for telling people about Jesus Christ. And yet Paul says, notice in verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And I fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. Paul said, it's good for me to suffer for Christ's sake. And it's good for me to suffer for your sake. And so Paul is going to now go on, and he's going to tell us in this passage that it's by virtue of union with Christ that people suffer. What made what made the world hate Christians so much? Well, it's because they hate Jesus. The world hates Christians because they hate Jesus. I wrote a track in seminary. It was called, Don't You Just Hate Christians? And I was trying to be thought-provoking. I wanted to put it out because I know almost everybody would be like, yeah, I hate Christians. And I walk into that track, and I say... Why do we hate Christians? Is it because they think they're better than people? Well, some do. It's because they're no fun? Well, yeah, that's probably part of it. But ultimately, the Bible says that people hate Christians because they hate Jesus. Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. If it hates me, it will hate you also. Do not Be surprised when the world hates you. And the Apostle Paul is a supreme example. He meant good for everyone. He did good for everyone. He spread the gospel. He was hated for the sake of Christ because he was united to Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to see three things this morning. First, we're going to see union with Christ in his sufferings. Then we're going to see union with Christ in his revelation. And finally, we're going to see union with Christ in his glory. Well, notice what Paul says there at the beginning. He's already introduce this, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, Paul is at the outset telling the Colossian believers that he is suffering for the sake of Christ. He is suffering because he's united to Christ. Now, Paul was a man that should know this all too well because Paul was a man who was persecuting Christians for the sake of Christ. Paul was the one dragging Christians out of their houses, throwing them in prison. As Saul of Tarsus, he was supreme persecutor of Christianity. And Jesus met him on the Damascus Road and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The risen Christ said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in that first interaction between Jesus and and Saul of Tarsus, Jesus pulls out the doctrine of union with Christ. Paul was persecuting believers, and yet Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? That all of those attacks and threats, imprisonments and stoning of Stephen was really aimed at Jesus. That Saul was trying to stomp out the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so at that first interaction, Jesus, in a sense, explains to Paul that great mystery of union with Christ, that those who believe in Jesus' belief, into union with Jesus. There's a mystical union. He is the head. We are the body. The church, believers, are the body of Jesus Christ. Just as a body, your body, cannot function without your head, so the body does not function apart from union with Jesus. And so everything that happens to the body happens to the head. If the body suffers, the head of the body suffers. The Bible is very clear that Jesus is in union with his people, and whenever they suffer, he suffers. When Stephen was being stoned to death, Jesus stood there and waited and received him into glory. He was with him in his suffering. Just as Bunyan said, I never knew the Lord with me in every circumstance until I came into this place. And I saw Jesus, and I felt him most clearly because when God's people suffer, Christ suffers. You know, it's interesting that when When Saul of Tarsus was converted, immediately after confronting him, converting him, and commissioning him, Jesus sent a man named Ananias to Paul, and he said to Ananias, in Acts 9.15, he said, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name. Paul the persecutor would become the persecuted. I will show him who has been persecuting me how much he will suffer for my name. And Paul says now in verse 24, I rejoice." In my sufferings for your sake, and I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul's saying, as a representative of the church, as one united to Jesus, as a minister sent throughout all the world, I rejoice to suffer for Christ and for you. I rejoice. Now, that is countercultural to say the least. You do not find unbelievers rejoicing over anything difficult. Oftentimes, we don't find Christians rejoicing ever-difficult things, sadly, to our shame. I include myself. But the world does not rejoice in suffering. The world complains about suffering, bickers about suffering, is perplexed about suffering. Paul sees purpose to Christian suffering. Notice what Paul says, I rejoice. He can rejoice because he sees a purpose in it. That he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the church. Now, we've got to be careful here. Paul's not saying that Jesus' death on the cross was not a sufficient sacrifice. Roman Catholics go to this verse to prove indulgences, to prove that Christ's death was not a full atonement. Paul is not saying that. Paul's just told us we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of sins. Paul's going to tell us in chapter 2 that at the cross Jesus disarms principalities and powers that our sins are nailed to the tree, that it is finished that the work of redemption is finished at Calvary, that nothing can be added to it, nothing can be taken from it. So what does Paul mean when he says, I fill up what is lacking in the affliction of Christ? Well, there are about six or seven ways that people interpret this. I think the best understanding is to say that Paul understood that for the church in the world to advance, those united to Jesus as ministers would continue suffering and Christians would continue suffering and that through that suffering the kingdom of Jesus would advance until he comes again and that there is a set number, as it were, of sufferings for the people of God that must occur in this world. There is a, an end-time view, as it were, of the sufferings of believers in this world and the purpose of God bringing the kingdom of Jesus until he comes again. And so believers can take comfort because they know that their afflictions are not in vain. They know that there is a real purpose. It was Tertullian, early church father, who said, um, and this is a paraphrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more Christians get martyred, the more the church advances. You know, Paul actually says that. Paul will actually say that in Philippians. He says that my chains have turned out For the furtherance of the gospel. He was in prison. He was held by Caesar's cohorts. He was enchained. He was drug around everywhere. And Paul says, you know why my chains are for the advancement of the gospel? Other Christians see what happened to me and they are more bold to speak the gospel. They know what happened and instead of shying away and turning from it, they are more bold to proclaim Christ. Because they saw that I went through that boldly, fearlessly, and joyfully. And that's what happens when Christians suffer and there's joy. And when you read the accounts of Bunyan and you read the accounts of all the martyrs, all the millions of martyrs that have been martyred for the name of Jesus, then you understand that you and I can go through it, that we can suffer. If our Lord suffered, if they suffered, we can suffer. Notice a few quotes. Um, One Christian theologian named Guy Debris who was... Imprisoned also said the ringing of my chain has been sweet music to my ears, my prison, an excellent school where God's spirit has been my teacher. The ringing of my chain is sweet music to my ear. That's exactly what Paul says in Philippians. It's what Paul is saying here. I rejoice in my sufferings for Christ's sake. Thomas Watson said, let us love a bleeding savior. Let us show our love to Christ by being ready to suffer for him. Was Christ a sacrifice did he bear God's wrath for us? We should be ready to bear man's wrath for him. And that's, that's what Paul's saying. In our union with Christ and his sufferings, there is purpose. There's purpose for you. Listen, you may think that suffering from the name of Jesus is far, far, far away from you in 21st century America. It may not be as far as you think. I am prepared to suffer for Jesus Christ. I prepare myself even in the midst of fear and trepidation to suffer for Jesus. Because when we tell people that they will perish apart from a Savior, the world will hate you, Satan will hate you, all the enemies of the gospel will rise up against you, and we prepare ourselves through the scriptures, through the testimony of those that have gone before us and suffered. That's why it's valuable to read Fox's Book of Martyrs and A Cloud of Witnesses. That's why there's value in those things. We ought to always be preparing ourselves. I will say this, if we don't suffer for Christ ever, in any way, we don't belong to Him. It's actually a mark of whether you belong to Him. If you've never been ostracized, if you've never been hated, my sufferings have been minimal. I got suspended one time, I got suspended one time from work for sharing the gospel during my lunch break, and the guy that got me suspended died two days later. The sufferings that Christians endure are generally great if we don't suffer at all then we show that we're not united to Jesus Christ. Our sufferings are evidence of our union with him. Secondly, Paul says that his sufferings were evidence also of his union in the revelation that God had entrusted to him. Notice verse 25. He says... In light of his ministry for the church in pouring himself out for the people of God, he says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul was willing to do what he was willing because God had entrusted to him a message. God had given him something and he had given him something so great that Paul knew what he was entrusted with was great enough to bring him to the point of enduring the greatest hardships for Jesus, he had been entrusted with the revelation of Jesus. Now, that may not seem that great to us living in 21st century America. I understand that. We had the Puritans come to Massachusetts in the 17th century. We've had all this Christian heritage. We, some of us, are generations of Christians and generations of Christians. Paul is going to say in this passage that the revelation of Christ makes it all worth it because that revelation was hidden, it was secret, it was revealed from ages and generations, and now, in the fullness of time, God has chosen to reveal it to his saints through the preaching of the gospel. And notice what Paul says. Notice that he says he's been entrusted with this ministry to fulfill the word of God, and he says in verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now been revealed to his saints. If you lived... I think it's safe to say we're all Gentiles here. We're all Greeks. We're not Jews. Maybe some of us have Jewish heritage. But if we lived on this side of the cross, we probably never would have heard the gospel. And what happened to people that didn't hear the gospel? They went to hell. Let me say that as emphatically as I can. What happened to all the people that didn't hear the gospel? They perished. We deserve to go to hell. We don't deserve salvation. The guy on the desert island is not innocent nobody's innocent. What happened to the myriads of people that didn't hear the gospel when God contained the gospel to the Jewish nation, they perished. Nineveh was an exception. Here and there, there were exceptions. Paul's point is missed if we miss that. On this side of the cross, God has sent that message out to all the nations. That's us. We live on the coastland of the sea. We are the far reaches of the ends of the earth. We are not a Christian nation we are not Israel we are America we are a pagan nation we, we are pagan people by lineage and Paul says that what drove him on was understanding that God's heart now was to save Gentiles people that Paul formerly would have hated the Jews hated the Gentiles people that were discriminate, discriminated against listen the greatest evangelistic prophet in the Old Testament was a national bigot Jonah the most evangelistically used prophet in the Old Testament was a bigot. And Paul, now driving on because God has said that the gospel is going to the Gentiles, people that he would have hated before now, his joy to see that message go out. And notice what he says at the end of this passage. He says in verse 28, talking about Christ, Him we proclaim, warning everyone teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Notice that threefold, everyone. Warning everyone, teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ Jesus. Paul will say that the gospel was preached to every creature under heaven that it should go out to all men and all nations and all people irrespective of their background, their ethnicity, their culture, their religious preferences. The gospel would go out and God would save people out of every tongue, tribe, nation, and language. And that when we get a glimpse of that and we get a glimpse of what that means in heaven, when in heaven there will be a multitude too great to number of every tongue, tribe, nation, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb and singing the praises of the One as we sang today, You have washed us with your blood, you are worthy Lamb of God. When you get that, and you get that it's about that end goal and the glory of Jesus when the nations are brought into his presence, you get why Paul would endure what he did because of the revelation that he received from Christ. It'd be very easy. It'd be very easy, wouldn't it? Something as great as the gospel. Sin's forgiven. Whatever you've done, sin's forgiven. Pardoned, accepted, eternal life. It'd be very easy for us to become selfish people and say, I want to keep that to myself and enjoy that for myself. And God said, no, that is to go out to the nations. Let's go out to the most barbaric, the most refined, the smartest, the most foolish people in the world. God, That was always God's plan. And yet in the fullness of time when Christ came, it was as if heaven broke down into earth and the gospel now spreads out. And we are to have a heart for that. We are to have a heart for the revelation of Christ to the nations, to Richmond Hill. We are the nations. America is a mission field. You know, I, I don't know if you've heard this, but I've often heard of Christians that have a sign on their door when they go out of their house. You're about to enter the mission field. I'm very attracted to the idea that everything that we do ought to be done in light of the mission of God. Wherever you go, you go out to eat at a restaurant, you hang out with friends, you go to a game. Whatever you're doing, you, if you're a believer, ought to be on mission for Jesus. And we as a church ought to be on mission for Jesus. And so Paul is telling us we ought to be because this was a hidden mystery. Notice that God actually has to reveal this. That's one of the most amazing things about the Bible. It's one of the things people hate the most, actually. To me, it's one of the most marvelous things that God has to open the eyes of sinners to see his son, to see that mystery. The gospel is a hidden secret of God, Thomas Watson said. The gospel is God's hidden secret. And as we read in Psalm 25 this morning, he reveals it to those that he chooses to reveal it to. And Paul says here, notice, it was a hidden secret. It was a hidden mystery. And it was the mystery of Jew and Gentile together. And then finally, and most significantly, it was the mystery of the glory of Christ in us. And so we're going to see in the third place, union with Christ in his glory notice what he says there in verse um, 27 to them to the Gentiles that's us God chose to make known how great among them are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you the hope of glory now if you consider that we according to God's word came from the ground we're made out of the ground as foolish as men may think that is you're going to return there and that's not foolish um, we came out of the ground. We're going to go back to the ground. And the infinite God says, I want to dwell in your heart by faith. We are dust. All we are, dust in the wind. And the infinite God wants to dwell in your heart by faith. Is that not mystery of mysteries? That the infinite, almighty, holy God would dwell in rebellious creatures like you and like me, who are nothing, who are dust who will return to the ground. And yet, Paul says, the mystery of the gospel is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, let me say this today. You may know a lot about the gospel. You may know a lot of doctrine. You may talk about it. You may have grown up in churches. You may think you know it inside and out. If Christ does not dwell in your heart by faith, you do not know this mystery. Let me say that again. You may know the gospel backward and forward. You may teach it to your children. You may talk about it. If Christ does not dwell in your heart by faith, you do not know the gospel. Because the gospel is not an intellectual thing. The gospel works itself down. Christ enters our heart by his spirit and indwells us. He makes us his temple. He shines the glory of heaven into our hearts. And Paul will say, we receive from him glory upon glory one degree of glory to another we are being transformed into his image we are so united to Jesus that it's impossible for the glory of Jesus not to be manifested in us it's impossible if you're a believer for the glory of Christ to be manifested in you what does that mean? that means that the way you talk the way you think about others what you do how you respond to things what you do with your time what you do with your money all of it the whole of life ought to be reflecting Christ in you the hope of glory and it's the guarantee the spirit indwelling your heart is the guarantee that you're going to heaven you're already, in a sense, in glory. That's what Paul's saying. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Spirit is the down payment. If you're a believer, the Spirit in your heart today is the down payment. God has sealed you and said, My son, my daughter, you are already seated with my Son in heaven. He is indwelling you. You are united to Him. He is united to you. And one day, notice what Paul says. Look, turn over to chapter 3. Notice what he says in, in verse 1 of chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek those things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you're a believer, your life is hidden with Christ in God by virtue of your union with him and his union with you. There's no greater mystery. You could travel all over the face of the earth looking for stories and entertainment and culture and mysteries. There is no greater mystery than the God who ought to send us to hell instead makes our hearts his home. There's no greater mystery. People that were alienated, cut off, depraved, rebellious God-haters, as we saw last week, now become the home, the dwelling place of the living God. And he, he loves to manifest himself to us and to reveal more of himself to us you know I often have kind of laughed about the stories of L. Ron Hubbard he was the the guy that started the Scientology movement and he would travel all over the world to find these different stories and he would come home and his friends all said he was a huge liar but they supported him anyway for tax purposes and he, he would come home and he would tell these elaborate stories about hunting lions and rhinoceroses and all these mysteries, all these things he learned all over the face of the earth and his friends would say, we knew he was lying but we just loved to sit and listen to all the mysterious and wonderful stories he would tell. We, just, we were so fascinated by him telling us all these, these stories of traveling the seven seas and doing all these wonderful mythical things that we knew he didn't do. Paul says... Your Savior has done everything for you. God has come from heaven to earth, has done everything for you, now indwells you by faith. How ought we to love listening to him, sitting and learning more about him, going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the things of Jesus? I think this verse, as we close this morning, I think this verse, verse 28, I'm sorry, 27, the mystery... Christ in you, the hope of glory, really ought to be a verse that we meditate on throughout our lives, throughout our journeys. You know, it may be that God calls us to suffer. Um, We're probably heading that way in America pretty rapidly. It may be that you will suffer as a Christian. And the way that we endure is the way that Bunyan endured and the way that Paul endured. They knew their union with Christ. They knew the mystery of the gospel. They knew Christ in you, the hope of glory. They knew that there was a purpose in their affliction. They knew God was bringing the nations to himself. They knew that it was all for the glory of Jesus Christ and all for our glory in him. Let me read to you again as we close Bunyan's words in prison because I find them so affecting. He said, I never had in all my life so great an inlet into the word of God as now Those scriptures I saw Nothing in before were made in this place to shine on me. Jesus Christ was never as real and apparent as now. Here I have seen and felt him indeed. I have had sweet sights of the forgiveness of my sins in this place and of my being with Jesus in another world. I never knew what it was for God to stand by me at all turns as I have found him now since I came in here. Were it lawful, I could pray for greater trouble for the greater comfort's sake. May God give us grace. In knowing these truths, to be able to say those things if we are called to suffer because of our union with Jesus Christ. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to us this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, we know the weakness of our hearts. We know how much we love the world, how much we love sin, how much we fear persecution. And yet, we have seen just something, some small glimpse of the glory of Jesus. And it has drawn our hearts away from the world we have known his indwelling in us father and we would know christ in us today more we would know the spirit united to us and forming christ in us more father we pray that you would build us up in him that you would root us in him that we would be established in him that we would have the hope of glory Father, we pray if any here do not know the Lord Jesus, they would know His grace, His love, His mercy, that He satisfies the soul like nothing can satisfy. We pray that we who have tasted would know more of that grace. Father, we pray that You would press these truths home, that You would write them in our hearts by Your Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.